Hello and welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi Smatabe. This podcast is an educational program from the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents USA. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Heinrich Foundation, an Asia-based philanthropic organization that works to advance mutually beneficial and sustainable global trade. Globalization. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear this word? At the risk of aging myself, the word takes me back to high school when during a computer class our teacher told us the advent of the computer had made the world a global village. But globalization is more than just a global village made possible by technology. According to the National Geographic Society, the term is used to describe how trade and technology have made the world into a more connected and interdependent place and captures in its scope the economic and social changes that have come about as a result. But a recent report titled What Went Wrong with Globalization from our partners at Heinrich Foundation gives us pause to take another look at the current state of globalization. The report argues that globalization has lost broad appeal in the court of public opinion. It also argues not only are the key performance metrics of globalization retreating, but the institutional framework is struggling too. So, why is the World Trade Organization, the global body that regulates and facilitates international trade, struggling? Is global trade and the threat from the proliferation of free trade agreements which go beyond the WTO rules? Joining me to discuss the report further is its author, Stuart Patterson, a research fellow at the Heinrich Foundation and founder of Capital Dialectics, a monthly publication aimed at financial institutions. Stuart has worked for 25 years in capital markets as an equity researcher, strategist and fund manager and has worked in London, Mumbai, Hong Kong and Singapore. He's also the author of China, Trade and Power, Why the West's Economic Engagement Has Failed. So, Stuart, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. And um, before we begin to delve into some of the points you raised in your paper, uh, which is titled What Went Wrong with Globalization, can you give us a summary of your diagnosis of the state of globalization today? Sure. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast, first of all. Um, Well, first of all, I don't think uh, globalisation is dead uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But when you look at the metrics of trade and foreign direct investment relative to GDP, what you see is that there has been a a stagnation and, in fact, a retreat um, in terms of the trade intensity of, of the global economy, and also the foreign direct investment flows relative to the size of investment in the global economy. So, so clearly what the numbers are telling us uh, is that globalization is stalling. But, but I think it goes beyond the pure metrics of measuring key dim- dimensions of, of the globalization process. Within that trade, uh, sort of, transcontinental trade is suffering more than regional trade. And so what we are seeing is a sort of fragmentation going on, which probably predates, to some extent at least, the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing. 
Um, so I think that there is clearly an issue with globalization. And, and I think broadly speaking, the process is lacking popular support in large parts of the world. It's lacking political backing in very important parts of the world, most noticeably the United States and China. And really without that popularity and a backing and a sense that um, globalization is a force for good, uh, then it shouldn't be surprising to see the metrics retreating. Mm. At least it's good to know that it, it's not entirely dead and that it's just, you know, on a decline. And you did outline, though, some four factors that you say cause globalization to stall, namely America's economic hegemony, the Washington consensus, great power competition, and then politics and trade. But one of your early comments about the World Trade Organization is where I want to start off. You write, and I quote, that the WTO, which was meant to oversee the multilateral trade framework, is struggling to make progress on trade liberalization and finds itself toiling to maintain its relevance. And it, it got me thinking, why is the WTO struggling to remain relevant? Because I've known the WTO since I was a kid. Well, I think you're probably exceptional in that regard. Uh, not many children know about the World Trade Organization. But let me first of all clarify the the four reasons uh, or the four key factors that sort of help facilitate globalization and the, the change in those factors that are causing it, in my view, to stall. Uh, you mentioned America's economic hegemony. Um, it's really the the loss of that that I believe is is the factor behind the stalling. Uh, the Washington consensus, it's the challenge to the Washington consensus from China and other places that, that is, is causing the, the stall, uh, the re-emergence of great power competition, and, of course, the politicization of trade, uh, as you mentioned. But but so why is the WTO, in my view, struggling to remain relevant? Well, there, there are a number of factors I've mentioned here. The first is, is, is fairly obvious, which is the proliferation of free trade agreements, which are either bilateral or plurilateral uh, trade agreements that go well beyond the WTO rules in terms of defining the terms of engagement between various economies, uh, which in and of themselves leave the WTO somewhat moribund uh, when such a large part of global trade is taking place out with uh, the WTO remit. So, so that would be the first point. I mean, the second point I'd make is that where large trading relationships are WTO dependent, and, and the obvious ones here would be uh, the triumvirate of uh, US, EU and China, where there are not there aren't bilateral trade agreements that tie those three blocks together and therefore trade between them uh, takes place under WTO rules by and large. Clearly, geopolitics um, is intervening and is usurping uh, somewhat at least the spirit of World Trade Organization rules. Uh, but then there's the institution itself and, and the challenges that that faces. And the WTO by its nature is a consensus driven organization. And with the appellate body effectively being emasculated through the lack of appointment of judges, through member state 
dissatisfaction with some of the rulings, particularly pertaining to uh, the national security exemption, and more broadly speaking and longer dating, perhaps, uh, the perceived failure of the WTO to handle the integration of a non-market large economy such as China into the global trading system smoothly, uh, clearly there are significant challenges. And that's why I would say that it's struggling to maintain its relevance. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can imagine also, especially even talking about the rules and some not following what the rules of the, of the organization is, then of course it's like questioning the organization's authority. And But you also noted that in 1990, for instance, when the EU was less integrated, the US's hegemony was much stronger, but with its um, hegemony now on the decline and the EU deeply integrated, economically speaking, the bloc has become an economic power. So it makes me wonder if other blocks like BRICS, the AU, for instance, do they pose any f future threat to globalization? Because we know they are also trying to, you know, become strongly integrated. So if we turn to Africa first, I would argue uh, highly unlikely, in fact, quite the reverse. I think I think that if one were to consider, for example, the fact that about you know, less than 20% of African exports actually go to other African countries. Um, there is clearly a tremendous opportunity uh, for African nations to trade amongst themselves uh, to a, gr a greater degree um, as they industrialize. And obviously, um, the hollowing out of China uh, provides Africa with a tremendous opportunity to um, take market share in manufacturing, uh, which should, one would hope, lead to greater intra-African trade. Um, and this is all part of the globalization process. That is not a, a threat to globalization. Uh, there is nothing in the WTO rules to stop comprehensive regional uh, trade agreements, uh, such as the EU single market being a, a sort of forerunner of that. Um, and so, the sort of aspiration to replicate that in Africa, you know, that does not pose a threat to globalization. It's a massive augmentation to to, to globalization uh, um, and, and should bring tremendous benefits should it materialize um, in a way that I think many people hope. Um, with regards to BRICS, I, I just don't see BRICS as being really a coherent block of countries with significant commonality of interests that will mean that you get deep integration uh, along the lines of a European single market, for example, or a USMCA. You know, it is in large part, I think, totemic. It is clearly led by China and China-centric, and yet the other members don't want it to be led by China per se. And, and so uh, I see it as something of a red herring um, and uh, a sort of almost uh, an organization or, uh, you know, it's a structure, if you like, that um, is being created out of a sort of fit of peak, uh, which I'm not sure it really has much of a future in its current format. Of course, if if many countries from the global south or other countries, for that matter, choose to draw be drawn into it, 
well, then there will have to be uh, a sort of set of institutions that evolve around it and what have you. And I think we're a long way from uh, the creation of a sort of deep integrated economic block. And, and, and I don't see intrinsically why it would pose a threat to globalization. A, a lot here obviously depends on one's definition of of the word, uh, yeah. but clearly, you know, anything that promotes trade and free capital flows would be good. I just find it really hard to believe that the countries that form the anacronym uh, are, are really committed to uh, the principles of national treatment, uh, most favoured nation status. Um, and the free movement and, of goods and services and capital and, and labour uh, between them. Uh, so I, I don't think that BRICS really is a relevant grouping in terms of the future of globalization. Not even with um, the ongoing um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, because we've seen, I mean, apart from Brazil and when Lula came in, which hasn't sort of decided to be as neutral and as pro-Russia, if you want, as the others have been, you still don't think they can form as tight a union to pose any future threat? Um, well, no, not not really. I mean, if you if you look look at the um, the, the various constituent parts, they clearly have um, uh, some very divergent interests. Um, mm -hmm. India and China um, have territorial disputes between them, for example. Um, you know, uh, the alienation of China from uh, much of the uh, free world um, is an opportunity for India. Um, you know, it's unlikely that China's steel industry is going to grow from here. It's likely to shrink, which, you know, poses an issue for Brazil, whose major export to China is actually iron ore. Brazil's interests in terms of exports of iron ore lie in countries that are as yet to develop their steel industry um so you know there are there are a, a myriad of of conflicts of interest uh between these 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 countries um and uh you know what the leaders of these countries all have in common up to a point is um an authoritarian tendency um and you know an aversion to a, a western led for want of a better a word um liberal global order um i don't see that as being an appealing alternative route to globalization okay now, um, under the section about America's hegemony, you write that the unchallenged dominance of the U.S. from an economic standpoint has passed. Um, has that power or dominance shifted yet to another country? Uh, no, I don't. I don't believe it has. I mean, obviously, the um, the only potential rival would be China, but you know, China is is still smaller than the United States in terms of its. Um, uh, GDP in, in 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 current dollars, you know, and it's certainly not anywhere near as dominant as the United States was at the time when GATT uh, was put together, or even when the WTO was formed in '95. So, so there's clearly no dominance from 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 China, uh, and obviously China uh, faces some huge 
economic challenges. I, I would argue that the, the the narrative that China is preordained to overtake the United States uh, in terms of size is is deeply flawed. But but the point I was making about the uh, loss of economic uh, dominance by the United States was really one that, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War, when the United States really was the dominant world economy, you know, with, you know, near and near, near enough a 50 percent share, it was the magnanimity that, uh, the, of the United States that that led to the World Trade Organization or GATS, the predecessor, because obviously a country that that is that dominant um, in any bilateral negotiation about trade, the market power of that country is such that clearly they're going to come out with the better deal. Um, but by constructing, you know, the whole purpose of the multilateral system was that, you know, the the, the dominant economies forgo some of their market leverage, their market power um, in the interests of a rules-based common order. What I think has changed is that as China has grown to challenge that dominance, uh, the incentive for the United States to be magnanimous and turn a blind eye to its own market power has disappeared. And, and thus you see a resurgence of uh, American influence and the exertion of that influence where they have it. Um, and that has been the key factor, I think, that um, has worked to the detriment of the multilateral trading system of late, is that an America that is being challenged is no longer happy to turn a blind eye uh, to abuses of the system, um, and nor is it as willing to forgo its leverage in negotiations. And therefore, the multilateral system doesn't serve it so well anymore. Now, I know you're, you, you're going to focus a lot more on China in the second part of your paper, but um, if you could briefly explain to us and to those who are going to be reading your paper after this or, or have read it already, what you mean when you say China's political economy and the implications of its integration into the world system warrants particular attention? Why so? Okay, so so when China joined the WTO in 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 two thousand and one, um, it did so with uh, a non market economy, and it did so with labour costs that were about one thirtieth of those of the advanced world. And clearly, there were going to be huge ramifications of that because you know capital in China is allocated uh, through state owned financial institutions. State-owned enterprises have always, in modern times, and continue to dominate the commanding heights of the Chinese economy. Um, the Chinese continue to run an undervalued exchange rate. Um, they have run a current account surplus every year since 1993. Um, and so clearly, this is a mercantilist model of... Uh, state capitalism, for want of a better word, uh, you know, and the integration of that into a market orientated economy clearly raises big issues. And, you know, I think that it's become increasingly clear uh, that WTO and 
or, or, or countries who are members of WTO with market-orientated economies um, have failed to manage the integration of China's economy, which is what they voted for when they let China accede to the World Trade Organization. And therefore, uh, clearly it is um, a source of tremendous friction um, and arguably the, the major reason why uh, the multilateral system is breaking down. Okay, got that. Now let's talk about um, politics and trade because you write that, quote, for much of the period when globalization rose, economics functioned largely apart from political agenda. Now, can you remember when these two rather distinct lines began to merge or blur? Because you did make some reference also to a 1999 Seattle anti-WTO um, riots. Was that when the... Sure. So, so I think it's probably a mistake to think that there was a watershed moment at which oh, okay. you know we moved from um, trade being apolitical to trade being political. And I'm talking here solely within the context of the post-Second World War period. Um, politics has always been there in the background. It was just that the politics was um, of secondary importance to the management of um, trading relationships. And, and, and perversely, I think you might be right in saying that Seattle might have been a watershed moment. Clearly, there have been many incidences along the road uh, in which um, domestic political agendas have raised their head. I, I dif differentiate here between geopolitics and 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 and, and domestic politics. Um, you know, we, we've now arrived at a juncture where you know a carbon border adjustment mechanism, you know, is in a way the encapsulation of a of a, a political agenda in trade. Um, which was precisely the kind of um, issue that various heads of the World Trade Organization have tried to avoid in the past. Uh, as, as I mentioned in, 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 in the report, it was Super Chai who was saying about the Seattle riots that, you know, it was hard enough to try and corral a consensus around a trade liberalization uh without uh the interference of, of, of domestic agendas such as you know human rights or or the environment or what have you so i think it's been a a creeping politicization of trade um remember those rioters in seattle in in in, in 1999 or rather the causes that they stood for were at the time perceived as being very marginal um, and are now, some of them at least, are, are, are very mainstream. So it's been a, a, a creep rather than, I think, a, a, a sort of a clear delineation of periods. All right. Now, in your view, are countries bypassing established WTO rules to ensure they at least maintain whatever level of influence they wield in an increasingly competitive global uh, trade system? That is, if they are unable to climb any further than where they are. Well, bypassing the rules is 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 an interesting point because, of course, without an appellate body, uh, there there you know we 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 can't discern, we don't get judgments as to 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 where they are. But it's really the spirit of the rules, right? I mean, the fundamental principles are most favoured nation status and national treatment. 
And it's really hard to argue that um, the major players in the global economy at the moment are applying national treatment and most favoured nation status broadly. So the spirit of the rules, if not the, the, the letter of the law, I think is definitely gone by the wayside. So... Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that we are in a period effectively of trade anarchy, even if uh, we still have WTO sort of functioning. Mm. So then that brings us to possible solutions or proposals. And you say there are two options to avoid a complete loss of the rules-based trade system with reforms being one way out. Why haven't reforms been carried out yet? And um are you talking about reforms of the WTO rules when you talk about reforms? So, so the WTO is a consensus-driven uh, organisation. Um, and so, you know, the, the key weakness in the multilateral system at the moment is that great power competition means that trust has disappeared between countries. And uh, so reform is is very hard to achieve, clearly. So... That's why it's it's not happened. Um, WTO is an all-inclusive organisation. There isn't really even a mechanism for throwing someone out. Um, and so, you know, hence the proliferation of plurilateral agreements outside WTO and FTAs. Uh, you know, people are looking elsewhere. I think WTO has been suffering from over-inclusiveness. Now, the WTO rules themselves are, are very broad and it's a, really, a relatively shallow, shallow prescription of, of the level of engagement. So um, in many ways, uh, the WTO rules are, are quite well suited to a, a period of uh, great power competition or, or, or distrust in a way. But it's, it's not the rules that really count. It's the attitude with which they're applied and the general spirit of cooperation, which is what makes the multilateral system work. Uh, and that's why I don't put much hope in the idea that you can come up with a new set of rules that are somehow going to make uh, the multilateral system function in a, in a way that it has done in the past when everyone seemed to be pulling in the same direction. Mm. Well, the, the second recommendation you have is essentially a division of the world trade system between systems that are systematically compatible. Can you explain that a bit further for, for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's become increasingly clear that um, market economies and non-market economies do not interact very well with each other. And they, you know, the, the tendency it has been in the recent past for market economies to start abandoning uh, their market principles uh, uh, and, and becoming much more like the non-market economies. And I think that's the detriment of, any, of, of, of everyone because, you know, broadly speaking, markets allocate resources more efficiently than governments do. Um, and so this huge leap into deep and heavy industrial policy, which I can completely understand where it's come from, which is a need to push back against China and a need to um, uh, rise to the existential threat that potentially China poses to the free world. Um, I completely understand where it comes from, but it's probably not good economics. And, and therefore, you know, the alternative 
you know, to becoming more like China is actually to cut China out of the system or to at least minimize one's economic interaction with it uh, in a way that preserves the integrity of a market economy. You know, and I, I think a lot of the social and political woes that uh, free and open societies face at the moment can be traced back to that initial decision to engage with China uh, through the World Trade Organization uh, on the premise that China would change and that, you know, that, you know, the, the liberal order would be transferred to China. The exact opposite has been the case. We have started to become more like China rather than China become more like a free and open society. And to me, disengaging is the best way to uh, maintain the integrity of, of, of market economies. Well, thank you very much, Stuart, uh, for, for explaining all of this to us. And we'll be looking forward to the second part of um, your report, which delves more to um, China's uh, situation as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me on to talk about it. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Press Podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Heinrich Foundation, an Asia-based philanthropic organization that works to advance mutually beneficial and sustainable global trade. Check out our show notes for the link to Stuart's paper, What Went Wrong with Globalization. We also encourage you to visit our website, www.foreignpresscorrespondence.org, for more educational resources from the AFPC USA. Also, do check out our dedicated press freedom platform. The address is www.pressfreedom.org for updates on global press freedom violations. Follow us on social media. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we are at Foreign Press USA. I hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of the Foreign Press Podcast. Many thanks for your time today. I'm Nia Krofi Smatabe. See you soon. Music